Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask your Holy Spirit to come and to fill this space, to fill our hearts, that as we study the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, we would learn something new about ourselves and about you and about what your kingdom is like and how we might participate. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So today we're looking at Daniel chapter nine, but I need to start by returning to something that we started with in our intro, which is the backdrop really to the book of Daniel and the theology of exile that was really part of kind of the the thinking behind the book. And you might recall that we started by reading select verses from Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And so I want to just share a few of those because they're going to be relevant again for this chapter. So this is the book of Deuteronomy. This is Moses speaking to the people before they enter the promised land. If you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments and decrees, which I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. When all these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses that I've set before you, if you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God and you and your children obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, just as I'm commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered you. Okay, so before we read Daniel chapter 9, I just want to return to some of the backdrop to see if you have any questions about it. Basically, as the people are going to enter the promised land, Moses says, here's the deal. If you're faithful and obedient, no problem. This is going to be smooth sailing. If you don't obey, then these other nations are going to swoop in like an eagle and overtake you, and all the curses of the covenant will fall upon you. And then he basically says, When all these things have happened to you, in other words, you're not going to be faithful and people are going to come in and overtake you. So when all these things have come upon you, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, if you're really sorry, if you pledge to obey, if you repent, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. So essentially what the book of Deuteronomy predicts before the people even enter the promised land is that they will not be faithful, that other nations will come in and overtake them in time, and that they will need to repent. But that when they do, whenever they offer that true repentance, that God will have compassion on them and restore them. And so any questions about that backdrop? And does that backdrop seem familiar uh, from our very first session? Yes. Yes. All right, so with that backdrop in mind, um, we now have Daniel's prayer for the people because we find that the people have been overtaken and that Daniel will say a prayer of repentance. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, 
must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Righteousness is on your side, O Lord, but open shame as at this day falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our officials, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, by following his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers, by bringing upon us a calamity so great that what has been done against Jerusalem has never been done under the whole heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We did not entreat the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and reflecting on his fidelity. So the Lord kept watch over this calamity until he brought it upon us. Indeed, the Lord our God is right in all that he has done, for we have disobeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned, even to this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, from your holy mountain. Because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become a disgrace among all our neighbors. Now, therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, oh my God, because of your city and your people who bear your name. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pause there and just say a word about this. So I know that the book of Daniel jumps around a little bit, and we're now uh, back in the first year of Darius. I think last week we were back with Belshazzar, but now we're back with the Persian rule. And during this time, Daniel has another vision or another perception where he perceives the number of years that need to be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And of course, this is a direct kind of reference to what's written in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, 11, 
This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. By the way, one of the things I'm present to is that as you read the Old Testament, there are a few events around which so much of the literature revolves. Um, One of those would be the Exodus, right? God bringing the people out of slavery of Egypt into the promised land, the giving of the law at Sinai. But one of the big events, especially for the prophets, was making sense of the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And so Jeremiah wrote about it. Isaiah wrote about it. The prophets wrestled with it. Uh, And so here, this big event is being reflected on the destruction of the temple and the people being sent into exile. And what this really did was raise a question. Is God faithful? Does God keep God's promise? Does God keep God's word? Is God in the wrong, right? Has God wronged his people? Did God bring us out of the land of Egypt and then abandon us, right? These were real questions that people might have asked. And This chapter gives a perspective on that, which we'll consider here in a little bit. Um, And so we have Daniel praying and fasting. He's in sackcloth and ashes. This is clearly a prayer of repentance. And we're told in verse four that he is making confession. And I invite you to hear this confession in light of Deuteronomy 30, right? When these things have happened to you, if you call them to mind, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, all all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore you. And so that's what Daniel is doing. He is seizing the promise of of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and offering repentance. Now, if you've read the book of Daniel, uh, you'll notice that Daniel is actually one of those figures, those unique figures in scripture who seems to get it right most of the time. And so what is he doing? We haven't seen him since. Um, And this is what I would call representative confession, that Daniel is embodying for the people the confession of the whole nation. And this idea of uh, a representative uh, is is a big piece of scripture, and, and it carries all the way over into how we see Jesus and Jesus's work. And so, for instance, the first Sunday of Lent every year, we read about Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days. And of course, Jesus's faithfulness in the wilderness uh, for 40 days is in contradistinction to the 40 years of uh, faithlessness of the Israelites in the wilderness. And the reason that we have this reading from um, uh, Jesus's time in the wilderness at the beginning of Lent is not so we can say, oh, look, Jesus was faithful for 40 days. We can be faithful for 40 days too. But rather to say Jesus was faithful for 40 days and he is our representative. We cling to him. We ask for his righteousness to become our righteousness for his faith to become our faith, for his standing with the Father to become our standing with the Father. And in a similar way, um, even though we don't have any personal sins recorded from Daniel, he's really praying this prayer on behalf of all of Israel. He is representing representing them almost as a priest. And so in verse five, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have rebelled. Daniel is trying to embody this prayer of repentance for all the people. And notice what he says in verse seven. Righteousness is on 
your side, O Lord. One of the things that Daniel is defending here is the righteousness of God. The point is, God is in the right. Because again, the question, has God abandoned his covenant? Has God abandoned his people? Um, Why would the temple fall? Why would we be given over to foreign powers? And Daniel is saying, righteousness is on your side. And this has happened, verse 7, because of the treachery that we have committed against you, because we have sinned against you. And then verse 9, to you, Lord, belongs mercy and forgiveness. We have rebelled. We have not obeyed your voice, but mercy and forgiveness belong to you. And so that's kind of the bones of Daniel's prayer. And notice in verse 11, no one's off the hook. All Israel has transgressed. No one here is getting a pass. Um, one wonders if Paul didn't have this verse in mind when he wrote Romans 3.23, that verse where it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, there is no righteous among us. We have all transgressed your law. We are all guilty. Righteousness is on God's side. It is a sweeping prayer of repentance, something that we might find, for instance, um, in the Ash Wednesday liturgy. It is a very, very uh, heartfelt prayer of repentance. And, And it's repeated, right? Again, verse 14, indeed, the Lord our God is right in all that he has done. We have disobeyed his voice. And so in in modern kind of theological conversations, this is the question of theodicy. Why does God allow bad things to happen? And I'm not saying that this is the only answer to that question, nor am I saying that um, this is the answer I would give a hurting person as a pastor. But in the world of Daniel, in the world of the covenant of the book of Deuteronomy, essentially what the people are saying is we deserve this. We have not obeyed. God is in the right to let this happen. Um, And so what does Daniel say? He says, let your anger and wrath depart you know, turn away your anger and wrath from Jerusalem and restore us. Let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. And then, of course, in verse 18, uh, we have this verse, we do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. For those of you familiar with the right one prayer of humble access in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, we say, we do not presume to come to this side table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies, that is completely copied and pasted from the book of Daniel. That's where we get that wonderful prayer from Daniel chapter nine. And so essentially, before we kind of get to the good news of the chapter, the whole thing starts with a prayer of repentance and confession, with Daniel serving as a representative of the people and basically saying, you know, we plead guilty, We need the mercy of the court. Um, Please restore us, not because we deserve it, but for the sake of your own name. Do this for your own glory. Do this uh, in order to lift your, you know, for your own sake, my God. That's what it says in verse 19. Do this for your own sake. And so we'll go ahead and pause there and see uh, what you think of this prayer and the theology and thinking behind it and representative theology and anything else that comes to mind as you read this first half of Daniel chapter nine. Right. One, 
I, this, this whole model that we get from Daniel um, can be taken as a model for almost all of our dealings with God, which is we must cleanse ourselves first before we go into the holy presence. Um, so you're, you're having, you know, we've just gone through the first half dealing with the repentance. And now we can move on to uh, what God might be willing to do for us. Mm. All right. I, I thank you. Kick it off, David. Uh, I heard a groan. Let's see, see what we have. But that's not the model of God that we have because he loves us despite our failures to cleanse ourselves. He loves us even in our unclean state. And when you look at the Israelites, even those in exile, Daniel was purporting to be their representative, but they themselves didn't really repent before Cyrus told them they could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So the, there never really was a, a full-scale repentance, a cleansing. That's what Jesus does for us. He, he cleans us. We're cleaned in the blood of the lamb. But we don't expect to be perfect or to be clean when we come to God. We come to God because we're not clean and we need his help. But anyway, that's my opinion. Two great thoughts to kick off the conversation. What else is stirring? I guess. I can hear you, Philip. Well, I find this passage for me, revolutionary in the sense that I think our tendency, first of all, is to interpret everything in individual terms. That is to say, well, I need to repent, or I this or I that. Whereas I think Daniel, his focus is not I. His focus is on Israel. And Israel, God's people, have been disobedient. And he, he reads the judgment upon Israel as God's way of dealing with their defection to idolatry. And he does not, this is, he does not exempt himself from those charges, but he prays for mercy. And I, I'm really, I'm not doing this very well, but I'm really struck by the fact that I guess for a good bit of my life, I have interpreted everything in personal terms. And the more I study the Bible with you, John, and others, the more I'm convinced that the issue is the church. And Israel is a figure of the church. And the way in which God deals with Israel is the way he deals with his church. And I guess this takes me to my whole professional career as a priest of the church in the sense that I have sensed something is terribly wrong in the church. And the question is, 
So how do we view our life under God at the moment? And the more I think about it, the more I come to think that we should look at ourselves as under judgment. And we maybe don't even know about what we're so blind. Uh, and the wonderful thing, and you hit on this, and I think, I think David has as well, uh, and certainly Evie has, uh, Christ recognizes this about Israel. He doesn't exempt himself from it. He becomes the representative of a repentant Israel. Mm. And so this becomes a figure for God's whole relationship with the world and the church and his servants. Philip, can you say a quick word about any difference you see between judgment and condemnation? Yes. To be condemned is, well, to, first of all, to be judged is to be told the truth. You are, you're guilty. And this is why you're guilty. To be condemned has to do with a sentence. Well said. And I, and I, see, I believe that the last judgment is really good news because I'm going to know myself thoroughly and show me the person who knows themselves thoroughly, who can really give them an honest account of their entire life. I can't. Yeah, I think that's such a, an important thing, because I think um, in today's world, we're, we're often clumsy with language. And so we conflate the words judgment and condemnation. Right. Um, and I also think that we live, you know, kind of with a, um, just a kind of a, uh, a, a world where people feel this nagging sense of shame or excessive guilt, when actually, which actually doesn't serve true repentance, you know, because there's a deep trust in Daniel's prayer. You know, Daniel is not what, you know, someone would, a modern Freudian would diagnose as having a, you know, a loud superego um, criticizing him. You know, Daniel just has a, a deep heart uh, and a deep trust in God that actually leads to this beautiful repentance. And so uh, I think making, uh, parsing out the difference between judgment and condemnation is really, really useful when it comes to having these conversations. Well, it really is. I mean, Paul never says that in Christ there is no judgment. He says right. there is no condemnation right. for those in Christ Jesus. That's well, and just to amplify it, I mean, Jesus even said, so I'm, I'm looking at John 12, 31. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. You know, so Jesus, when he is going to his death in the gospel of John says, now is the judgment of the world, yeah. which is paradoxically also, you know, the salvation of the world. So there's something kind of mysterious happening with judgment and salvation and how those things go together. I totally agree. It's Because it, to me, the question before the church now is why is the church under judgment? Can we answer that question? Taken to, well, I mean, anything taken to an extreme can be problematic, but, um, you know, the concept of pointing out, you know, judgment on, you know, telling the truth about an individual, um, can lead to condemnation, um, taken to its extreme. Um, I'll just leave it at that.
Well, I think it's an important comment, Barbara, um, because we really, you know, I, I do think, especially with how we're conditioned um, and with this current moment, we really have to parse those things out because, I mean, both theologically speaking and just kind of like just doing the, the normal like research of what people who live with excessive shame, like shame is positively correlated with addiction, violence, uh, basically injustice, all the, all the ills that the church is called to both diagnose and heal people who just feel excessive shame and condemned, you know, they're not out there like loving on you. They're out there causing trouble. Right. So, um, it's really important that, and we're going to get to this in the second half of the chapter, um, where, um, the angel says to Daniel, you are greatly beloved. The tension we have to hold is, that, and, and this is uniquely Christian in my understanding, that this idea of both being under judgment and being greatly beloved by God, that these things actually fit like a hand in a glove and kind of God's understanding. And that, so I think your comment's really important, you know, mm -hmm. that we keep those parsed out. I think it's also kind of going back to our earlier conversation, you know, where David and Evie you know, started talking about um, kind of just the nuances and theology behind the author of Daniel and then people who read this in the context of Jesus, our representative, right, in light of his life, death, and resurrection. It's interesting to know the way that Paul reinterprets a lot of this work. So, for instance, in Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, right? And so in Daniel's worldview, the curse of the law has fallen upon Israel. They are experiencing that uh, as a physical exile out of Jerusalem. In Paul's understanding, at least reading Galatians, the fullness of that curse has fallen on Jesus he is our representative. And yet, to Philip's point, um, that doesn't mean that we just sit around and eat candy all day comfortable, that something about Jesus becoming the curse for us is meant to awaken a willingness to step into God's judgment and to offer a true repentance, as did Daniel. So it, it's really kind of an interesting thing uh, where both Jesus takes on the curse of the law, the condemnation, and yet the judgment is still on us. Does that make any sense? Or is that just kind of muddy in the waters? Well, um, so one thing that you said, it was like uh, raised an eyebrow and you described the Babylonian exile as being a curse. And I've understood it to be a consequence, which is different. Um, and, um, you know, it was pretty, you know, hefty, <laughs> I'll grant you that, um, and to destroy, you know, your temple and, and I'm sure the people experienced it as a curse. Um, and Barbara, I'm just trying when, in saying that yeah. I'm, I, I'm trying to stay within the symbolic world okay. of 
So mm-hmm. for instance, where it says in Deuteronomy, if you will not obey the Lord, your God, then all these curses shall come upon you. Okay. So the idea of the curses of disobedience, okay. uh, which is part of kind of the, the world of the, I'm not suggesting the way that we moderns that God has cursed us, but that's kind of how it would have been felt. That. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. That sounds good. But I get it. The language is jarring, right? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> jarring to 21st century Western modern yeah. ears. Yeah. You know, we don't. Yeah. I agree. Well, I think Barbara's point is really important. And I, <clears throat> my own way of wrestling with it is that I, I think that judgment apart from mercy does become condemnation. Mm-hmm. If, however, judgment is made out of mercy and love because the truth is necessary, then it becomes a way of a possibly new future. Um, And I think, you know, God plays hardball. He's after us. And he's willing to have his son die to get that done. and he's gonna, he, he will, the truth will out. And, but that's a part of God's mercy. We can't, but we can't come to him in true worship except in truth. And that woe is me. But again, what's so, what's so radical, I mean, I think of the gospel of John, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so just to your point, the judgment is that to be welcomed. It is our freedom, right? That's what I think. Go ahead, Julie. I think you're going to chime well, in. Well, I, I always think about it in the way of, um, of being a parent. So, you know, when our kids um, and, I, you know, just having experiences with my children, um, that there were certain consequences of your behavior. They were natural consequences, right? Um, and I think we need to experience some of those consequences in order to learn in in families where the kids have no consequences to their actions. Um, they kind of figure, oh, my parents are going to bail me out. So, so why should I change what I'm doing? And I think a little bit that it's, it's that same way is that God gives us choices. Um, sometimes we mess up and then there are some natural consequences of that. Um, I still remember the time my son, you know, did something and there was, there was a consequence, I mean, there was a consequence to it. And, uh, and he said, I hate consequences. <laughs> Just didn't like that at all. But it, it's really true. I think that just as we see in our own families what happens, um, so, so God is trying to teach us the consequences of, of our behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. we have to, that's the way we learn. That's the way we learn and we grow and we change. Um, but, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate those comments. I, I, before we kind of move on to the second piece of the chapter, I think there's two things that I just really want to say as a facilitator of the study. 
um, that are important to me and, and we'll see if y'all have a response. The first is that it really is important to read this as Christians. And by that, I mean, we read all of scripture through the lens of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. And so whenever we read Deuteronomy 28 through 30, the whole if then, like if you obey, I'm going to bless you. If you sin, you're going to be cursed that there's, you know, I think that this is both fully God's word, but that um, that we do have to read that uh, through the lens of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. Otherwise, uh, maybe to Barbara's point, it's very easy to slide into just kind of a tit for tat punitive understanding. So, for instance, like when Katrina hits and New Orleans is wiped out, you know, apart from the revelation of God in Christ, it's easy to take the theology of Deuteronomy 28 through 30 and to say, well, that is a direct punishment for so-and-so's disobedience. Um, and so I, I do think we need to be mindful of that uh, when we get to the blesses and curses of the covenant and how we understand exile, whether it's the destruction of a temple or the destruction of a marriage or the destruction of a city by a natural disaster, we need to be very careful about saying, oh, those people sinned and therefore God has punished them. And just to say, that's not exactly what we're talking about. But the other thing that's really important, I think, here is this idea of representative theology. And there's this you know, tradition in, in Christianity, and, and it really kind of comes up in the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the one who intercedes for us. And so... Um, we have, um, there's that verse in the book of James, James 5, 16, where it says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. That's again, an idea of representative theology. A righteous person's prayer is powerful and effective, but the idea in Christianity is that Jesus is truly the righteous one interceding for us all the time. Uh, and that there's something powerful about that. And so we see Daniel's prayer for Israel as almost a forerunner of the prayer of Jesus for the church. So those are just some thoughts I have. Well, I just would like to say you're right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Y'all want to look at the second half of the chapter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, here we go. Um, so, while I was speaking and was praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication for the, before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went out, and I've come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, 
There shall be seven weeks, and for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in the troubled time. After the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall be an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. All right, so basically verses 25 through 27 I almost didn't print them. It's basically kind of a Debbie Downer end of the chapter. It basically (laughs) says, you know, things are going to be really, really bad. Lots of desolation, lots of more pain. But before that, we get this vision that there will be a restoration. And that's really what I want to focus on. Um, um, So a few things. One is, so Daniel is speaking and notice how he says confessing my sin and the sin of my people so he's confessing both and then we have the man gabriel but it's not really a man it's the angel gabriel who comes in swift flight unless we're to believe this is a flying human being i think we can just go ahead and say this is the archangel gabriel and what is his message he says uh i'm coming to give you wisdom and understanding Uh, And in verse 23, he says, you are greatly beloved. And so there is a strong word of grace that will be repeated in the chapters we're going to look at next week, where uh, the foundation of, I think, you know, Daniel's identity is this word from Gabriel, you are greatly beloved. And I would invite you, uh, the reader of this chapter, as we do this study, to hear that word spoken to you, too, that Gabriel flies to you, right, in all of your exile and declares you to be greatly beloved. Um, And then he says, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, And so that's the vision, that God's vision is to fully finish the transgression, to end sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And what's interesting about verse 24, and I will admit the math in Daniel and Leviticus and Deuteronomy often gets kind of wonky, but it says 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your city. So 70 weeks, that's, um, or or, or 77s. um, it, it, it might say, I think, in the Hebrew. And as commentators point out, in Leviticus chapter 25, you have a multiplication of seven weeks of years that results in 49 years. And the 50th year in the book of Leviticus is the Jubilee. And the Jubilee was this time of freedom. It was a time where debts were cleared, where everyone kind of got their land back. And it was like this, this metaphor almost for uh, salvation. Um, And I think that Gabriel's message can be understood in light of this Jubilee passage of Leviticus 25, 8, um, that essentially in saying 77s, that what is being told to Daniel is that what God is planning is like a tenfold and ultimate Jubilee. Now, again, the math gets really wonky. And if you want to cross-reference Daniel 9 with Leviticus 28, um, you can do that um, at a different time. 
but there is a clear tie, I think, between Daniel 9.24 and Leviticus 25.8. And the heart of the message is that when the time is fulfilled, that what God has planned is like 10 times greater than the Jubilee of Leviticus. Also want to draw your mind to some other references in the New Testament that might build off Daniel chapter 9. And so, for instance, uh, Matthew 18, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? Seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Where on earth did Jesus get the number 77? Did he just make it up? No, he is building off all this 77s, you know, uh, all this language from Daniel chapter 9, where God is bringing an end to transgression, atoning for iniquity, bringing in a moment of everlasting righteousness. And so part of what Jesus is saying to Peter is, in light of the kingdom's arrival, right, all that nonsense, uh, not nonsense, but all that curse, all that exile of the book of Daniel that we talked about in Daniel chapter nine, it's over. Your forgiveness is a sacrament, a sign of this new age of everlasting righteousness. Uh, Also want to point out Mark chapter one. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Well, what time is Jesus talking about? The time is fulfilled. He's talking about the time of Daniel chapter 9. This is a time to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. And so as you think about how the first Christians would have read the book of Daniel, how Jesus was informed by the book of Daniel, you know, just think about the things he said to Peter 77 times, all of the book of Daniel. The end of exile is in his mind and heart. When he begins his ministry saying the time is fulfilled, he's talking about this vision from the book of Daniel. The tenfold jubilee is coming in and in through my ministry. It's why he says, believe the good news. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pause there and see what thoughts y'all have about the second half of Daniel chapter nine. So the question is, uh, is Daniel the only writer who uses symbolic sevens? No. And so you might, I mean, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We remember um, there's this interesting figure by the name of Lamech, kind of comes out of nowhere. And he, he basically says, if, you know, so-and-so is injured seven times, and I will take revenge 77 times. It's, uh-huh. a, it's a very weird kind of obscure verse. And so in that moment with Peter, you know, Jesus is also reversing the law of Lamech. But this idea of like, 77, you know, numerology and all that stuff, and, and, and maybe not numerology, but this, the sevens and 77, it, it, it occurs elsewhere. Book of Jeremiah, 70 years, right? And so there's a lot kind of tied into that. What about this image of the tenfold jubilee? Did you get lost in all of that weird math? Or do you think that that's what's happening there. No, I, I, it's CV. I think that makes perfect sense. And I really like that idea because that's what Jesus brings us is that ultimate Jubilee. And that's what Daniel is looking forward to. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I like that idea very much. It makes sense and, and sort of coheres with the rest of the Bible, which I always like when, when there's a coherence. Yeah. John, can I ask you one quick question? Sure. Your, your very last statement, is there a difference between Daniel's repentance and the repentance Daniel models in chapter nine with this prayer? And that kind of, I, I'm not sure that I understand that. If we're assuming that Daniel is sin free, isn't he just being totally representative in, make, in, in, in praying the prayer? I think I, I think I wrote that question incorrectly. I think what I meant to say, is there a difference between our repentance or the, the repentance the church is meant to offer and uh, the repentance Daniel models in chapter nine? Basically, oh, okay. because we, we believe we are to repent. And so okay. my question is, what differences, if any, are there between how we repent and what we're supposed to do and what Daniel does? It was just a thought-provoking question. Oh, okay. I understand. That makes more sense now. Yeah. Well, that that whole uh, the whole story, the publican and the Pharisee, that shows the effect of repentance is saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, which is basically what Daniel is saying, asking for mercy and admitting that all the people were sinners. It also so, shows how far out of line the um, the Pharisee was, like in terms mm -hmm. of his repentance, you know, to stand before God and say, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Right, this is exactly. the exact opposite right. of the repentance God calls for in the book of Deuteronomy and that we see modeled by Daniel in chapter nine. That's right. Yeah. I'm, re I'm reminded here also uh, uh, humans sin. But humans are all uh, saddled with the sin nature. And whether you want to come to God with some kind of laundry list of sins or say, I haven't done any of that lately. The bottom line is all of us have the sinful nature and if nothing else, we have to repent of that and ask God to cleanse us of that. Mm -hmm. Am I, am I mute? No, we can hear you, Philip. Okay, okay good. Uh, a marginal comment on numerology uh, that might be helpful. Uh, <clears throat> seven is a perfect number in that it combines the odd and the even. So if you if you up seven to seventy seven, you've really done the perfect thing, and that would seem to me probably a connotation, if not a denotation, of that. Uh, mm -hmm. Very marginal comment. So no, it's important. I mean, seven seven is the holistic number. You know, God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh day. The seventh day is the, the day of God's rest, God's salvation. It's complete fruition. It's, com it's completion. It's wholeness, right? Yeah. It's done. Yeah. 
All right. Well, so we will uh, chew a little bit more. We have uh, a little bit more of Daniel next week, and then I'll keep looking at our syllabus. I think I plan maybe one or two post-Daniel conversations to tie in some of the themes. But thank you all for your time this week, and I'll see you all next Sunday.